0: You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 8, Exercise. I think everybody's heard by now that there's a lot of science that shows that exercise is really good for your physical health. But does exercise affect your mind and brain? Does running really make you happy or is it just a pain? Today, Minding the Brain explores the science of exercise and its effects on happiness and mental health. So, Kim, why are you interested in the link between exercise and mental health? How'd you get into this?
1: I think because even though I would never have described myself as, quote-unquote, an athlete, I've always been very adamant about getting my exercise in, and I've been pretty physically active most of my adult life. I remember going on my first run when I was in my master's, I ran for 12 minutes. I was so proud. Uh, and fast forward to a year or two later, I was actually running races, and uh, eventually became a running instructor. And when I was postdocing at the University of British Columbia, so all throughout, you know, a pretty crazy academic career, I've maintained uh, my running habit, and I have been really interested on no- and noticing that when I don't get my runs in how it has impacted my mood. And because of that, I kind of started getting into the literature and looking into the science behind exercise and mental health and exercise and cognition and actually um, found some really interesting data on how exercise impacts uh, your well-being and uh, things like dementia and found this really rich literature, although it's fairly... Uh, underexplored right now that demonstrates a, a pretty big link between exercise and the functioning of the brain and the mind.
0: And you run to work, don't you?
1: I do. I run commute uh, pretty much three three days a week. Uh, it's a 4.2 kilometer run each way. And uh, I, f- I find... My run into work is it's it's very meditative, and I, I kind of think about my day. I compose emails in my head. If I've got a lecture, I kind of right. run through my lecture. And on the way home, it's kind of like the decompression. I'm thinking right. about what I'm making for dinner and like what what I'm going to do with my kids.
0: And do people do people like when they hear that you and you run all winter? yeah, So th- those of you who don't know, Ottawa is a frozen wasteland for six <laughs> months of the year. And Kim. <laughs> dodges ice and actually runs now i get called a real badass because i cycle year-round do you get do when people hear you run in the winter are you do you get similar props
1: I do, and especially because I ran with both my pregnancies. Oh my god! So sometimes I would actually get people looking at me and being like, "What are you doing?" And and again, there's a whole rich uh, literature that supports it's actually better for the baby when mom is physically active up to a certain point. And that's um, countered
0: a lot of cultural beliefs, right? That they correct. should be like bedridden, basically. That's right. right? Yeah.
1: Okay. And and what our listeners can't see is I'm actually in my running gear right now. <laughs> <laughs> Got my shoes. You're gonna run home right I'm after run this. Home. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So this idea that exercise improves mental health. Is this something that's like come up in the last 20 years?
1: Uh, Certainly not. I think anecdotally, we've known this for quite a long time. In fact, Plato in the fourth century um, said, quote, in order for man, and I assume he meant women too, but in order for man to succeed in life, God provided him with two means, education and physical activity, not separately, one for the soul and the other for the body, but for the two together with these means, men and women uh, can attain perfection. So this has been a, you know, an idea that has been around for certainly uh, hundreds of years. we've known this anecdotally, but we're now starting to recognize the science behind this. And essentially, you know, in in my research of this, there seems to be two main effects of exercise. Number one, the benefit of exercise on cognition, and number two, the benefit of exercise on mental health and well-being.
0: So you say it's anecdotally visible. How about... um evidence? Do we see evidence of this too?
1: Mm-hmm. So certainly with the data on looking on, on cognitive capabilities, primarily this is uh, people looking at kids and academics. So, you know, a typical study is uh, one where they've gone into a school and they've taken a population of kids and they've gotten them to perform like a running test, like run one mile and they time all these kids. And then what they do is Uh, look at those kids' scores in tests of math and reading. And essentially what they do is is correlate them and they say, okay, is there uh, a relationship here? Are are kids that are running faster also kids that have higher scores on tests uh, that measure math and, and reading?
0: And are they tested like while they're still panting?
1: Oh, God, no. Yeah, I guess that's a good question. No, no, these are, um, like, in, in a lot of these are done in the States, but they have a lot of standardized testing. So they have the scores from these standardized tests that the children would have taken at another So it's time. not like
0: a short-term, like, their blood is pumping.
1: Correct, although there is, <clears throat> yeah, we'll talk t- about okay, that okay, data. Yeah. yeah, so, and then, um, so they've done all these correlational studies, and, and these effects are, are pretty consistent, even when you control for educational background of the parent. And so when you take a bunch of these studies, so a special kind of analysis is known as a meta-analysis, so for our listeners that aren't that familiar with statistics, a meta-analysis is essentially when you ask a question and you answer it by looking at a whole bunch of published literature that have done studies that similarly ask that question. So these meta-analyses have concluded that physical activity does indeed uh, improve intelligence, it enhances creativity and planning skills. And in fact, and this is amazing because certainly in the school systems, there's been a, an increasing trend of removing physical activity from, mm. from day-to-day schooling. But what they've demonstrated is that even if you take away an hour a day and, and have kids be active, that in fact leads to improvements in math and te- uh, scores of math and, and reading. So, so there's some interventions
0: that work really well with the, trou- the the kids who are having trouble and not so well with the great kids or vice versa but you're saying that this is the these effects are across the board is that what you mean by yeah. educational background and stuff Correct. like yeah. it helps everybody yeah Oh, yeah. That's, that's great and mm-hmm. now you know if we see that the kids that are exercising more are, are doing better at school that that mean, that you know that doesn't mean one's causing the other couldn't it be that the parents who push them academically also push them physically? Like, do we know if there's a cause going on there? Right,
1: yeah. So, uh, like I said, most of these studies are correlational in nature, but they have done some uh, tests and studies where they've explored causality, and the the way that you explore causality is in the form of what's called an intervention study. So, in this case, they took kids that um, were, you know, mild to moderate uh, overweight kids, and they randomly assigned them to one of three groups. So uh, one was a no, no exercising group. Uh, another was they exercised for 20 minutes a day, five times uh, five times a day, uh, five times over the week. And then the third group was they were exercising five di- five times 40 minutes a day. And they did this for 15 weeks. And what they found was at the end of the 15-week period, uh, only the group that exercised 40 minutes a day for five days a week improved significantly on their measure of planning, Uh, which was really interesting because planning, as we know, is, um, well, as maybe our listeners are not aware of, but planning is the domain of the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe sits at the very front of your brain, and is the most recently evolved part of our uh, cerebrum. And so it seems as though uh, regular exercise seems to have a great benefit on specifically that part of the brain.
0: Oh, that's so okay. So when you say that part, Mm -hmm. you know, intelligence is usually a combination of a lot of different kinds of skills, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that some skills are done, you know, in the the cerebellum or whatever. And does this in help with some cognitive tasks more than others
1: yeah well you know to be fair there isn't a lot of studies that are look at the different domains of of cognition Uh, most of the studies have focused on domains that are involved in academics right so planning for example creativity uh, attention uh and certainly there are improvements with all of those measures and also interestingly on tests that measure motor reaction time so these are studies that have been done primarily in older Older adults looking at how the effects of exercise uh, can possibly um, stave off dementia. And they've done some really interesting studies with that as well.
0: Okay. So, is this uh, any kind of exercise?
1: Yeah, so great question. In fact, um, from, again, all the reading that I've done, Uh, the effects the benefits are really only for aerobic and not anaerobic exercise so let me unpin that a bit so aerobic exercise is the kind of exercise that is cardiovascularly demanding so uh, things like running cycling swimming anything that's getting your heart rate up and uh, i'm not sure you know our listeners may not be as familiar with um exercise exertion but there's a scale called the levels of perceived exertion scale which is essentially if you're out for a run uh are you able to you know from a scale of one to ten ten is like you're not able to say a word and one is like you're sitting on the couch like watching people running on tv right so we're looking at levels of perceived exertion between like seven and eight which is a moderate level of of aerobic exercise by contrast anaerobic exercise are things like weightlifting, right so you're you're anaerobic literally means not no oxygen or not requiring oxygen. So when you're doing just, you know, 10 reps of some 20-pound bicep curls, it's unlikely that you're raising your heart rate uh, at that sustained level. Right. You're doing
0: your muscles, but not your respiratory and your your blood flow.
1: You know, as, as a caveat to that, there are certainly forms of circuit training where you're you know, you are lifting weights and you are going very quickly from one exercise to another. And, and that is leading to sustained levels of heart rate uh, at about 75 to 85 uh, percent of your maximum heart rate. And that for sure has that same effect. But just sitting around uh, doing the occasional bicep curl isn't going to do it.
0: Okay. Um, is, now, I've heard some people say that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you get your heart rate up. You know, you walk 20 minutes a day that's all you need. Is that true?
1: So that's another question that really hasn't been very well answered in the literature. And you're, you're speaking to the idea of dose, right? The idea of, you know, how much is necessary to get these benefits. And we really don't have any good uh, longitudinal, randomized design studies that look at that. And the reality is, there are so many other f- variables that could influence those effects that it, it would be, you'd have to have a giant study in order to unpin and control for all these variables, right? So things like genetics, other lifestyle factors like uh, your diet, um, how much sleep you're getting. So for example, I, you know, you compare me to another 42 year old woman, maybe I need 60 minutes of activity per day to get these effects. Maybe that other person needs 40 minutes, right? So we we just need more studies on this. But, uh, you know, for somebody who doesn't have the same level of fitness, a walk around the block, absolutely, if that's gonna get your heart rate up, then that's gonna probably confer that benefit. Versus somebody who is in a higher degree of fitness, they just need more to get that sustained effect.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. So you the heart rate is important.
1: Yes. Getting yes. that up, you can't mm-hmm. just you
0: can't just take a leisurely stroll. <laughs> okay.
1: Although that has other benefits.
0: <clears throat> right. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Can we get under the hood a little bit? What's the what's the mechanism? How can how can exercise, you know, we think of exercise as improving your muscles and maybe your lungs or something, but what by what mechanism could exercise affect the brain?
1: Well, like I mentioned, when you are engaging in this aerobic exercise, the main impact is, is it's getting your heart to work, right? So your heart is pumping faster, you're increasing the contraction of your heart. And essentially what that is doing is it's increasing cerebral blood flow. So cerebral means up to the brain, right? So you're just pumping that much more blood up into your brain and your brain is a hungry, hungry organ. Uh, I think it gets about 70 to 80% of your blood flow gets up into your brain or the, the circulation gets up into your brain. And what's happening is that as you're pumping um, blood up into your brain, you're also allowing for uh, more efficient glucose utilization. Now. Interesting little fun fact. Did you know that your brain, the the only form of energy that it can sustain or that it can use, is glucose or sugar, right? So fats cannot be used by the brain as a form of energy. Uh, it can only use glucose. So when you're pumping uh, your blood flow up to your brain, you're getting a lot of glucose up there, and it's allowing it to use it more efficiently.
0: So are you smarter the faster your heart's pumping?
1: Oof. Uh, I think you're 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 more. Attentive, and you're more aware. You're you're smarter within your own, you know, range, right? Like I think uh, this is why um, a lot of libraries, and, and I think Carlton now has a treadmill in one of in the Discovery Center. It does. In, yeah. A couple. Of, yeah. Treadmill because. Death. Yeah, and people are starting to become aware that uh, you are pumping all this blood up into your brain, and and for whatever reason, particularly the frontal frontal lobe and it's making you more attentive. And I mean, certainly attention is one feature of intelligence, right?
0: Yeah. I, um, I use a treadmill desk too. Uh, but I read, you know, Daniel Kahneman, who's a very famous psychologist. Mm. He, he, he says that, um, he would never, he doesn't do it and he wouldn't do it ever for something that was really cognitively demanding because there is some distract there. Part of your mind is occupied just doing the walking too. So I think do there's think? A, I definitely think so. Like if yeah. I, if I am, you're Just not- answering emails, then it's <clears throat> it's no problem. Mm. But if I'm really trying to tackle a really challenging problem, like debugging mm. a code or something like that, if I'm walking, um, yeah, I find it's a little distracting. I mean, it, the thing is, I think that there could be at the same time what you're talking about, which is that there's more glucose and oxygen available. But at the same time, the walking itself is... I mean, like, think about running. Like, you can't... Are you at full intellectual capacity when you're sprinting? Probably not. No, because right. yeah,
1: yeah, that's fair. You know, so yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's like you would be more of the expert on this, like different cognitive domains, right? That some that inter interfere with one another.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, so
1: well, I, and I also want to mention. Um, one of the, mo- like the most eminent scientists looking doing research looking at the benefits of exercise on brain health is a woman named Henriette Van Praag, and she's at the National Institute on Aging in Baltimore. And she does a lot of studies primarily in, in rodents. But she's also demonstrated that when you uh, get ec- uh, rats that are in high exercise conditions, right? And these are typically animals that are in what are called enrichment environments. So they're living groups of 12 and they have like free access to all these like running wheels and toys and stuff. This These animals have increased production of what are called growth factors. And growth factors are specific kinds of proteins in the brain that are involved in uh, the formation of neurons. They're involved in the growth of neurons and also the vasculature of neurons and also the supporting cells in the brain, which are glial cells. So you're literally building your brain and repairing it and uh, helping it be, helping keep a healthy brain when you are engaging in regular aerobic exercise. And vascular
0: is um, vascular is blood the, flow.
1: Correct. Yeah. So your arteries. Okay. Um, so it's like yeah.
0: helping the infrastructure of your mind. Mind. Yeah. So it can, it yeah. Can like you're scaffolding. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Um, now, some people exercise less as they get older. Uh, they lose their, lose a little energy and stuff. Does exercise reduce some of the age related cognitive decline that we see in older adults?
1: Yeah. So this is a whole other research domain looking at the benefits of exercise in specifically staving off things like what's what we call natural age related. Uh, cognitive decline or dementia, right? So there are many different forms of dementia. Maybe we'll get Matt Hallahan in here and he can do a whole show on on dementia and and, um, other uh, cognitive decline. But essentially, the data show that if you are somebody that has engaged in, again, regular aerobic exercise, uh, primarily during your middle age uh, period, so between 30 and 40 years of age, you know, obviously if you're uh, engaging exercise earlier, that's cool too, but this seems to have a prophylactic or or preventative effect. So people who are active in in mid-age are less likely to experience um, uh, dementias, right? So they're uh, less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and also regular uh, age-related decline. So it seems that it does have (coughs) a preventative effect. Um,
0: Was that stuff correlative too?
1: Yeah. So these aren't inter- so there are intervention studies, but the data that I'm speaking of is not. It's like it's like retrospective studies. So you get a group of seventy-year-olds and you ask them like a questionnaire, uh, you know, at, which basically targets like how much they were exercising in their you know thirties, forties, fifties, etc. And then you also look at you do some brain scans, and so uh, you can pretty much correlate. You do some correlational analyses, looking at whether people who had higher levels of activity also showed uh, less uh, deterioration or mm-hmm. um, a shrinking of of the cortex, and then you also look at their likelihood of having dementias.
0: Right. So there might there might be a third factor causing. Like you might be more right. willing to do exercise yeah. if you're Motivation, healthy, right? but you said there are some interventions.
1: Yeah, studies. there are some intervention studies. Uh, again, very simple, very similar to the ones that were with kids, where you get groups of adults that are showing mild to moderate dementia, and. Um, in one case, they got adults, uh, like, walking around, like, these older adults walking around the block for 20 minutes a day. Uh, others, they just got them to do, like, light weight-bearing exercise. And then they did, this one One study in particular was pretty interesting. They did a pre-post analysis. So they got um, these adults to do, like, a simple time reaction task, so, like, press this button when you see this on the screen. Uh, and so they, they have a pre-test measure or pre-intervention measure. And then they got them to, you know, do the walk or the the weight training and then, of course, a a no-intervention control group. And then they retested them after the intervention. And sure enough, the the adults that were walking around the block did show um, an improvement in the reaction time. So there are some studies. Uh, One of the most recent uh, papers, actually, a really interesting meta-analysis. So again, one of these papers that looks at a bunch of studies. Um, These were in human brain imaging studies. And what they found was that... uh, Adults that maintain regular exercise, aerobic exercise, and then you scan them um, later in life. The main benefit seems to be it staves off the normal age-related decline in the volume of a brain region known as the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is um, a, a diverse uh Cell bo- population, but it's a, and it does a lot of things involved in spatial memory, it's involved in anxiety regulation. Uh, but it also is the part of the brain that uh, sh- you get actually birth of new brain cells throughout uh, your lifespan. So uh, it's where neurogenesis happens. Neuro- Wait a minute,
0: so it's the hippocampus creates nerve cells that then travel mm. to different parts of the brain
1: that we think so i mean this is like an ongoing debate as to what those new cells do we think they may be recruited into existing brain circuitry or we're not sure um but yes possibly parts of the frontal cortex they've they've mapped some cells Uh, but essentially this brain region is 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 really cool in that it continues to birth new cells um throughout your your lifespan and but the the volume of uh, the how much that happens declines as we age. But if you're regularly exercising, you you don't see this natural decline in the, in the size of the hippocampus.
0: Okay, well, that's great. So exercise and cognition, mm-hmm. looks like there are a lot of links there. What about the other side of the mind? Uh, things like emotions and mood, does exercise affect those things as well?
1: Yeah, again, lots of subjective or anecdotal evidence that... Regular exercise improves feelings of well-being and seems to reduce anxiety. I mean, you you know, you go around campus here, you see a lot. I, and I usually survey my students how many of them are uh, exercising regularly, and a lot of students seem to be using exercise, which is great as a very positive coping strategy for you know during exam time, for example, when they're pretty stressed out. Um, and there are some small, mind you, small studies, so take that with a grain of salt, that look at whether. Again, because we know that we see, it seems anecdotally that exercise improves mood. Can we then use that as a prescription for things like depression, right? And it does seem like it does. It has a benefit, mind you, only for mild to moderate depression, right? So somebody who has severe depression can't get out of bed, you know, is really really requiring medication. Exercise isn't really going to cut it, but certainly. Um, People who, who do uh, get, quote unquote, prescribed uh, act, uh, exercise d- does seem to have a benefit on mood. And people who exercise regularly, so the, the effect goes in the other direction, also less likely to have depressive disorder. Mm. But again, that take that you know, critical thinking. Uh, it could be that people are just more motivated to exercise, right? Motivation is a big part of depression. So people who are motivated to exercise probably are motivated in general, right? And depression is marked by lack of motivation. But again, most of these studies are small. They have a lot of methodological flaws. Uh, and basically, human studies are hard to do, right?
0: Yeah, I I um, was recently reading about meditation benefits, and oh, yeah. there was a big discussion in this paper I read, uh, like a big review paper, saying that one of the problems is it's hard to have a control group. So in in medicine... Yeah. Uh, they'll often give a sugar pill, um, and and the the person giving the pill doesn't know what it is, and the and the patient doesn't know whether they're getting a sugar pill or the actual medicine and that's called a double blind study. And it's really hard to give the equivalent of a sugar pill for meditation. Like how do you they know the people who are in the meditation group know they're meditating, right? So, you know, how can you put someone in a group where they're doing something that seems like meditation but isn't meditation? I think exercise is probably one of those things. Yeah, right? exactly.
1: You you either know you're exercising or not. And that's why it's important to turn to studies that use animal models to explore the mechanisms underlying uh, the benefits of exercise in the brain, because animal models are animals you can control many factors, right? All right.
0: So what do the animal studies show?
1: So remember back to Henriette van Prague. She's shown that, um, lo and behold, when you have groups of, in this case, mice, and you give one group access to a wheel and they're allowed free uh, act, um, free option to run on that wheel for six weeks, let's say, and then you have another group that's, quote, the sedentary group, unquote. The wheel-running mice have increased rates of neurogenesis. Uh, so we're seeing lots of birth of those new cells in uh, the regions of the hippocampus. And there's another... Um, husband and wife team out of Yale University, Duman and Duman. <coughs> and they've shown, again, similar interve- uh, similar design where you've got a wheel running in a sedentary group. And uh, this, the voluntary exercising group <coughs> shows uh, decreased uh, depressive and anxiety behavior. Now you're probably saying, how do you know what depression and anxiety looks like in a mouse, right? You can't ask a mouse, are you depressed? Right. <laughs> um, so we have, in animal research, we have some really interesting novel takes on this. Uh, there are tests where you can look at what's what we say is depressive-like and anxiety-like behavior. And uh, there is a one measure of depression is something known as the forced swim task. And you take a mouse or a rat and you allow it in a tank of water for like five minutes and you measure the amount of time the animal spends swimming or staying still. And the more time it spends staying still is actually a measure of depression. And you might think that's kind of weird. But if you give the animal an antidepressant, like a classic drug that relieves depression in humans, the animals actually spend more time swimming. That's
0: interesting. Do, do, do we find that um, <clears throat> humans are also less, uh, have less... Um persistence on a difficult task when they're depressed yes ah, okay, absolutely
1: mm-hmm. and then uh, also with anxiety the classic test of anxiety in rodents is something known as the elevated plus maze rodents don't like being in open spaces you might note that if you've ever gone into the kitchen in the middle of the night and turn on the light and the little mouse runs across the room and tries to hide in behind the cupboards uh so the open field uh the elevated plus is literally uh uh an elevated plus where you have two arms that are open to the environment and two arms that are closed so they have walls and you put the animal in the middle of the plus and you measure the amount of time it spends in the open arms versus the closed arms and the more time it spends out in the open arms the less anxious the animal is mm. so all told animals that get exercise spend less time sent like floating in that for swim and uh more time out in the open arms so they're less anxious and less depressed they also again show increased rates of neurogenesis, um, which interestingly depended on the presence of some of those growth factors I was telling you about earlier. Wow,
0: and and uh, I think it's kind of exciting. When I was a kid, the state of the art was that you were born with every neuron you'd ever had, and and now yes. and this, this neurogenesis is pretty new.
1: Yeah, it's within really <clears> the last I would say forty or fifty years. It was first demonstrated um, by a neuroscientist who was studying it in birds, a guy named Fernando Nottebom, and nobody believed him uh, because he was showing that during certain times of the year, birds sing more, right, to attract mm. mates. And he was showing that uh, during the spring when the males are singing to attract their females, they're actually, the, the volume of a region of the brain that's analogous to the hippocampus was increasing. And he said, it's new cells, it's new cells. And people didn't believe him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and here we are. So, well, okay. Cool. Yeah. It seems that making new neurons is somehow linked to mood and anxiety, really? which is really cool. Yeah.
0: Um, well, so you can run and put your, you maybe get out of a funk if you go for a run or something, but are there long term effects? Like, will they prevent, uh, you know, any kind of mental problems?
1: Yeah. So, uh, sort of like the same idea with the cognitive decline in the elderly. Uh, it seems as though, again, regular exercise seems to enhance well-being, and in fact, uh, there's a study that I, I think is really, really cool, it was published a few years ago um, by Schoenfeld, and uh, he published it in the journal called, which is the Journal of Neuroscience, which is the top journal in our field, no surprise. Uh, but this is interesting because it, it shows that finally neuroscientists were willing to pay attention to some of these key findings with regard to exercise in the brain and what he did was really cool he got again mice that were running in a wheel um and then the animal uh, the mice that were sedentary and at the end of that six-week period uh he exposed them to a cold water test which is really he put them in a tank of cold water for uh, a short amount of time and this is a stressor right and then what he did was immediately um uh, sacrificed the animals, looked in the brain, and what he was looking at was, number one, neurogenesis. And no surprise, the animals that were wheel running had higher rates of neurogenesis. But what he found was that in animals that were sedentary, he found an increase in the expression of something known as immediate early genes. Now, I'm not going to go too much into the science of this because it is fairly complex. But suffice it to say that what this effect meant is that The animals that were sedentary and then put in a tank of cold water, activation of these immediate early genes was like the brain saying, oh my God, raise the alarms, right? Like, what are we going to do here, right? Panic, cold water. By contrast, in the wheel running animals, they didn't have this effect. And what that interpretation is, is that it's like, guys, we got this. We're used to stress. We're Mm. used to managing challenge, right? Don't no, No need to raise the alarm bells it's fine. And in fact, what they saw in their wheel running animals was instead activation of circuitry that is involved in inhibition. So calming the nervous system down. So the, again, the interpretation of this, this great series of studies is that uh, regular exercise seems to promote anxiety regulation mm. and make us more able to manage uh, and cope with stress down the line.
0: So if you run, you're better able to take it in stride. But okay. What about (laughs) what about um? Okay, so so is this a is this a cure-all? Like, if somebody's depressed, should they throw away their prescribed antidepressants and uh, just run every day?
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I think the main message here is that yes, if you're prescribed medicine for some. Uh, mental health dis- challenge like depression or anxiety, you should probably stay on that um, because you are being overseen by a physician right now. We're not necessarily prescribing, uh, although there is, you know, there is certainly in the OMA they talk about uh, Ontario Medical Association about uh, the benefits of exercise. So I know physicians do uh, talk to their patients about that. But as I mentioned earlier, if you have severe depression, exercise isn't going to do it. So exercise isn't going to hurt. Right. So if you are uh, managing a a mental health disorder or managing, you know, just the daily challenges of life, it doesn't hurt to start exercising. And it helps you physically at least. Right. Exactly. Right. And your brain is part of your is an organ. So, uh, again, think about your dose, too. Right. These dose effects. I don't know if 60 minutes a day is going to be enough for me or if it's 20 minutes a day. So the science just isn't really there yet.
0: Okay. Um and is there such thing as a runner's high? Does that make sense? I got runner's arthritis, so I never got the high. But is there is there such a thing as runner's high? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. So when I was it's funny when I was a running instructor in UBC, I was training new runners, so people have ne- who had never run before, uh, how to uh, to run their first ever 10K in the Vancouver Sun Run, and I remember going out on one of the training runs like a few weeks in, and, and a couple of my runners were saying. What am I going to get that? Runners high? Mm. <laughs> what, what, what's all this buzz? And uh, there is actually a paper where they, where they explored this, believe it or not, um, published, I think, in 2008, where they they took a bunch of uh, high endurance runners. Um, so I think th- th- this was a little extreme. but they were, these were people that are running like two hours at a time, these ultra marathoners. And what they did was they got them to go on this long training run. And then immediately after, they put them in a PET scanner, so a positron emission tomography scanner, which measures basically uh, activity of cells as measured by how much glucose is going to certain populations of cells. So what you're looking at is where's all, where's all the, the food the going, food going right. right? And they were specifically looking at um, uh, opioid receptor availability. So opioids uh, are uh, the natural—we have natural opioids, so you've probably heard of en- endorphins— Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So endorphins, which are released when we, in, in certain cases of fight or flight, but also in cases where we are exercising for long periods of time, endorphins are released. They're our natural pain relieving compound and they bind to what are called opioid receptors. So specific proteins in the brain that bind these, these uh, endorphins. And what they found was lo and behold, they... Um, they got the runners to self report so say how if work they felt after this 2 hour run and the more euphoric they felt the greater of this binding of these endorphins to those opioid receptors so you know all that is to say yep runner's high seems to be real and is related to endorphins
0: okay so let's wrap up with some advice to listeners maybe if they don't they feel that they're not physically active enough what's a what's a way to start
1: um so I always say, like, especially you know, and you think about like New Year's resolution. People they're like, I'm going to, you know, suddenly get fit, right? Uh, certainly, in the psychological psychological literature, there's a lot of data on motivation and people sticking with certain life changes. And my biggest advice, based on that, is to start small. Don't suddenly be like, I'm going to go to the gym every single day this week. I would say, <clears throat> commit to one day a week, right? Commit to something. That is doable within your specific life domain, right? And also pick something that you love. Again, being a runner, I I, I run into, Haha. I I um I I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I wish I could be a runner, right? And they they you know they buy their running shoes and they just kind of like slog through their run. Not everybody is meant to be a runner, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody has like the wherewithal, the physical necessity equipment. You know, we're all different. If it's tennis, if it's hockey, if it's swimming, find an activity that you really love because chances are, if you enjoy doing it, you're more likely to stick with it. So and,
0: I- and compliance is is more important than the exertion, like right? Yes, like it's more important that you stick to something small than do something and wear yourself out and burn out that's
1: right yeah yeah. you're more likely to stick with it in the long term so start small do something you love Uh, another piece of advice I would say is to plan your life around exercise versus planning exercise around your life really why what I mean by that is I see so often people are like, oh, you know, they bring their gym clothes to work or whatever. And they're like, I'm going to go to the gym when I have a break. Um. Well, guess what? You know, like you're always going to find something else to fill your time or life will fill that time for you. So I would say, again, if you're if you're planning to, you know, maybe just hit the gym once or go for one run, find a a specific day and time. Say, okay, I'm going to go for a run on Wednesday morning at 815 or Wednesday evening at 10 p.m. and stick to it and plan your life around that run. Another thing I would recommend is to be creative with when you find that exercise time. So, again, with me, the reason I run to work is because it allows me to get my exercise in at the same time as commuting into work, because I really don't think I would be able to find the time outside of the you know first thing in the morning and at the end of the day um, to, to fit in that into my schedule. So be creative with when you can find, you know, lunch hour, um, in the evenings, whatever works best for you, and to look into exercising with with groups. So um, one thing I also do is I exercise every Thursday night with a group of women. I think I've talked about this before, the Fit Mom. Uh, the Fit Moms uh, join the motherhood. Uh, so it's a group of women who... Um, Essentially, we get together and we do uh, circuit training and I do it every Thursday night. And I look forward to going to that, not only because I get to get out of the house and it's time to myself, but I get to laugh with a bunch of people that are like-minded. And Mm -hmm. that social benefit is huge. And they have shown studies that people who run in groups, like the running room, for example, has those running clinics, uh, are more likely to stick with it than running on their own, particularly if you're new to exercise. And finally, my last piece of advice is to cultivate a healthy identity. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of research in psychology and in my field in addiction about identity. And if you, if you like wake up every morning, you're like, I, you know, you make a choice every day. We make choices about our life, right? Like, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Well, I think, you know, I'm somebody that I eat healthy, right? And I'm going to opt for something that's like a fruit carb, you know, mix, a healthy protein. Uh, that informs my decision about what I what I eat, and also when I miss my run, I think, but I'm a runner, right? Like I okay. should be running. So if you have a, a, an identity around your lack of exercise, I think it's it's good to like, kind of reflect on. How how am I being healthy? How am I making healthy choices every day? And ha- how am I how is that becoming a part of me? So if you cu- start to cultivate that healthy identity, and you know in, in the addiction world is a, it's about not using often the abstinence based right. So making friends with people who aren't using. So make friends with people who are exercising. Uh, uh, make social plans where you're going out for a walk. I mean, we went out for for a skate on the canal with uh, a group of friends yesterday. So cultivating that in your life has been shown to have an impact and
0: but 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 concretely what does cultivating an identity actually mean does it mean like you just think to yourself the words i'm the kind of person who's act has an active lifestyle or do you do you tell everybody
1: i think it's a bit of i think it's both those things um i think more the 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 choices that you make when you're making those decisions that you're 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 aware of what those decisions mean about yourself, if that makes any sense, and certainly telling others. Like you know, they they do say also in like the like if you're quitting smoking, the best thing you can do is call up everybody you know and say I'm quitting smoking, right? So mm. it's 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 about that commitment to whatever that identity is. Right,
0: right, great. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm just going to end with a moment of silence in uh, sympathy for everyone stuck in traffic on their way to the gym so they can get on a stationary bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Kontos, and brought to you by CKCU 93.1FM, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part by the brain's dopaminergic system. Without which our host would have no ambition to do anything, much less create a podcast. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available
1: at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.